Hello everyone and welcome to the sixth SCVO podcast um, based on our book Charities Scotland and Hollywood 20 Years of Living Change. My name is Jenny Bloomfield, I'm Senior Policy Leader at SCVO and today I'm really pleased to have with me Peter Peacock who's former Policy Director of Community Land Scotland. Today we're going to be speaking about community right to buy. Hi Peter. Hi. So community right to buy, we'll just get straight in. To me, <laughs> and apologies, but I'm, I'm sure this won't just be me. I hope this isn't just me. It sounds to me like that housing scheme where you buy council houses, but that's not what it is, is it? So can you just briefly tell us what community right to buy yeah, well, is? It, it's absolutely not what it sounds like, if, that, if, that's <laughs> you, if that's what you think it sounds like. I mean, you, you have to put this in a sort of context of um, how Scotland's land is owned. Mm-hmm. And Scotland's got one of the most concentrated land ownership patterns anywhere in the world. So very, very few people own the vast majority of Scotland's land. So it's reckoned that something like 432 people own uh, over 50% of our rural land, private okay. rural land. Okay. Now, there's been a cause in Scotland for you know, a century or more about the need for land reform. Mm-hmm. And then that was never fulfilled, partly because Parliament wasn't that interested at the UK level, but also um, because the House of Lords it protected their landed interests and therefore the chances of reform in the uh, in prior devolution were actually probably difficult because you might not get parliamentary time but also difficult politically. Yeah. So when uh, the Scottish Parliament was created, one of the first things it had to address really, given this long-standing cause of land reform, was the question of land reform, which mm-hmm. they did. The work had started in 1997, uh, before the Scottish Parliament was created, and there was a land policy group that created a, a kind of platform for what ought to happen. And one of the things that they recommended that should happen was that there should be some mechanism to allow communities to buy land. Uh, and they, that gave rise to the Scottish Parliament when it was created, beginning to legislate for that and go through the normal legislative process. So I suppose to, so a community could always pull some money and put in a bid for some land. So what's the community right to buy? What's the right Well, there? it's essentially that, that a community can do what you call register an interest in a piece of land. Mm-hmm. And when that land comes on the market, you have the right to buy it. You get the first option in buying it. It can't go on the market and it option. can't be sold. Okay. Uh, but also, in the Crofting counties of Scotland, in the same Act, the 2003 Act, that was the one that the Parliament uh, first dealt with, um, and it was approved in 2003, that also gave crofting communities the absolute right to buy. So they could buy their land with the permission of ministers, even if the landowner didn't want to sell that land. Okay. And that was quite radical, Yeah. Uh, obviously. In fact, the whole act was quite radical. And it was born, in practical terms, out of what had happened in Assent, in the northwest of the Highlands, where the community, just a few years before that, had uh, purchased their land uh, when it was on the market for sale. And it was an amazing uh, story of how they did that. Uh, and they raised all the money themselves and, and got that uh, done. Uh, however, the question was, could every community or many communities in Scotland replicate that? The feeling was that they couldn't. And therefore, there had to be legal provisions put in place to allow the community the time to put together a bid to purchase, hence the registering of an interest in land, and then the absolute right to have first refusal at the purchase of that land then. Amazing. OK, great. That's really, really helpful. So, next question. Has the community right to buy legislation, has that been used much since it came in? It has been used, um, but the 
there was a lot of criticism of it too. It's an immensely complex piece of legislation. Great demands on a community organisation in terms of their constitution. You've got to secure a majority and a ballot of all local electors, um, a properly run ballot, and there's all sorts of rules attaching to that. Um, and various hurdles that you've got to cross about proving that your purchase would be in the public interest and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all sorts of constitutional niceties that you've got to get approved and, and there's all, a whole range of difficulties. Mapping requirements of the land are very complex and so on. So yes, it has been used, but also there was a critique that said it really wasn't uh, up to... Um, it wasn't as good as it could be because it was too complicated, mm -hmm. but also the basic problem with the Act was that you could only buy land when it came on the market for sale mm -hmm. uh, or get the opportunity to buy land uh, when it came on the market for sale except for crofting communities who could have this absolute right to buy and there was a sort of trigger mechanism for that. Um, so the, the feeling was that that really wasn't very good because a huge amount of that land owned by very few people in Scotland actually very seldom comes on the market. Right, okay. So therefore the campaign really began to say, well, okay, one, can we simplify this Act when the Parliament was reviewing it? But secondly, can we extend the rights mm -hmm. to other circumstances where a community could make a case to buy the land? Uh, that, was, that, was, that was another strand to the campaign. third thing was to extend the right to buy to every community in Scotland because the first act only applied to rural communities under 10,000 people. Okay. Uh, and so there are various strands behind yeah. the emerge of an yeah. agenda for change and that's what we in Community Land Scotland started campaigning for uh, and, and then the story will unfold as we go on. Amazing. So how, so how did the campaign fit start? So you, the 2003 Act went through and then Community Land Scotland formed to try and make, make these changes that you just outlined, is that correct? Yeah, Community Land Scotland was formed about 2010 and the reason it was formed it was because there were a number of community owners, not all of whom had used the, the Act to purchase, some of it was prior to the Act. They were beginning to get together because they had common interests mm -hmm. and they felt that momentum had gone out of land reform. So Community Land Scotland was formed very much to try and rekindle the arguments for land reform and to make changes to the um, to the Land Reform Scotland Act of 2003 uh, and a variety of other things, also campaigning to have a land fund created um, so that communities could get financial help with the purchase and so, and so on and so forth. So okay. there's a range of strands to that born out of the critique that this had not gone far enough and it was difficult to use. So it sounds quite complicated. How did you, as Community Land Scotland and the other people that you were working with, how did you decide what to go for first or did you decide to go for everything all at once? What was your sort of plan of action? Well, we, there was a lot of activity going on in the Scottish Parliament anyway around the community right to buy in the sense that the Scottish Parliament had been created and one of the things that they uh, undertook to try and do was have what they call post-legislative scrutiny of early Acts of Parliament, indeed any Act of Parliament. So because there was bits of criticism about the, the, the complexity of the Act, the then Minister, um, Lazana Cunningham, who's now, as it happens, back as, as the Minister uh, for Land Reform, she gave a commitment to review the Land Reform Act uh, just prior to the 2011 election. So that gives Community Land Scotland the means into the argument in a formal sense because they knew there'd be a bit post-legislative scrutiny uh, and therefore they began to make representations to the parliamentary committee about all of that, making their view begin to be heard and so on and so forth. So th that, was the, that was the beginning of a process. And then along came what's called the Community Empowerment Act of 2015. Okay. Uh, and 
that was a really interesting uh, process, I guess, because that would be starting, you know, I don't know, uh, 2012, 2013, something like that. And essentially what ministers were seeing, as I understand it, was all this sort of community empowerment going on across the country, small pockets of it, good examples, really interesting examples, communities taking more control of their own destiny. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of that, you know, lots of important things were happening. But, in, in the Highland context, uh, population decline being stemmed in the communities that bought, new housing being created, new jobs being created, and so mm -hmm. on. So ministers said, not just in the, from a rural context, but also from urban Scotland, where they were seeing organisations like the Development Trust Association Scotland, and so on, doing lots of important things with, with communities in the urban context. Ministers sort of said, well, we want more of this, but we don't quite know how to do it. Okay. So civil servants were kind of instructed to go out with a blank sheet of paper, talk to people and say, what could we do in order to um, improve or increase the community empowerment that was going on in Scotland? Mm -hmm. So there was the vehicle that we then alighted on because mm -hmm. there was a commitment to, to have an act of Parliament or a, a bill to try and get that through Parliament about all of that. So we made a big policy, present not presentation, but a... Um, a consultation response to that, really quite a detailed, big response, setting out a whole series of ideas. And then as the debate matured, 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 it became clear that the vehicle for simplifying the community, sorry, the, 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 yes, the, the, the Land Fund Scotland Act, which contained the community right to buy, that would become the Community Empowerment Act would be the vehicle for doing that. So that's when we really geared up to decide well, what we're we going to aim for specifically in that act. And there's a whole range of things that we So then in some ways, it sounds from what you're saying that in some ways you were quite fortunate that the ministers were thinking more broadly and then it was something that you were able to get hold of and say, well, yeah, we can stick our needs and our asks onto this act that they're pursuing. In that particular context, yes, it was. We were able to use that vehicle. Um, but if that vehicle had not been available, there would have been still a very determined effort to I'm get sure. a new vehicle. Mm. And actually what happened was that in the course of passing that Community Empowerment Act, which did reform the Land Reform Act, and it did extend the right to buy to urban communities, yeah. and it began to eat into the question of what are the extra rights that communities could have even when the land is not for sale, and that gave right to uh, give rise to a commitment, not commitment, but a piece of the statute that if the land was abandoned or neglected, a community could make a right to buy uh, application, okay. even if the owner didn't want to sell. So we're beginning to make a bit of progress in that, but we didn't think we were making enough progress. We wanted to see a commitment to a community being able to make a case in relation to the sustainable development of their community to get a right to purchase, which mm -hmm. is a much broader concept. The government didn't feel they could do that at the time, which was disappointing, but we were pretty firm about what we wanted to see happen in that, and we did manage to get a commitment there would be a further Land Reform Act a year later, uh, and that would be the vehicle for considering those and yet further wider questions. And we also managed to get the first references in the Community Empowerment Act to the questions of human rights and land reform, and requiring ministers to have regard certain uh, international covenant on economic, social and cultural rights when making certain decisions mm -hmm. about land reform. Again, that's quite a deliberate uh, intention to widen the repertoire of arguments a community would have to try and argue to get the right to buy. So, you know, we got that vehicle that was there in the Community Empowerment yeah. Act, but it didn't go as far as we wanted. Mm -hmm. And 
there was the creation of a further vehicle subsequent to that. So when you managed to get... So, you, so the Land Reform Act happened, certain things in it weren't happy, pushed again, saw the Community Act coming in, Community Empowerment Act, sorry, coming in, attached some things to that. Yep. Kept pushing because you needed more. Presumably then you weren't just pushing with government, presumably you also worked with opposition parties. Yep. Now remind me, would that, that wouldn't have been a minority government, that would have been just an SNP yep. majority. So how did you find working with opposition parties, well, was that helpful or did you just focus on government? No, we, 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 I, think, I think it's a really quite important point this, that uh, we were very clear that we had to work with all the political parties. So mm -hmm. treat the government as one entity, mm -hmm. but also look at all the political parties. Mm -hmm. And we had uh, SNP members, members of the party of government, uh, but backbenchers who mm -hmm. assisted us with various things. We had the Labour Party members, uh, we were speaking to the Greens and the Lib Dems and the Conservatives. So, and we were trying to be as even-handed about that, being very clear about what we were after, not hiding from it in any way, being upfront about it. And, you know, we constructed, we built relationships with people on the key committee, or committees, and we, um, when it came to the point of coming to the stage one report about these acts, you know, you, you use the techniques that are available to you um, to try and make sure that you're invited to give evidence mm -hmm. in the hope of getting a reference to what you're wanting in the stage one report mm -hmm. that goes to Parliament. If you do that, you're well on the road to getting things through the committee. Um, but also then preparing for the stage two report, seeing what the government says in relation to the stage one report, preparing for the stage two committee um, process, I should say, not report, uh, and then specifically, you know, drafting amendments, but also then drafting, once you've drafted them, once you've got a very clear idea of what you want, um, then looking for the particular MSPs on the committee or beyond the committee, if it was appropriate, to find their interests, what they'd spoken about in the past, what they'd expressed an interest in, and actually go through and say, look, we've got these amendments, we think you might like to push that one, um, and then say to other people, you might like to push that one, and so on. And we actually tried to get, well, there's huge opposition to between politicians. There's also a lot of collaboration and yeah. trying to get them to talk to each other about, you know, would you rather do that or would it be better if an SNP member did that? Mm -hmm. or, so we had a range of approaches that we took to try and make sure we were um, getting what we wanted uh, tabled in Parliament. Uh, and we'd got some strong professional help in actually drafting the amendments, which I can go into. Yeah, really I'd be interested to hear about Well, that. I mean, the, the, the thing that's probably absolutely key in this when you're trying to affect legislation, and we learned a lot about this um, you know, during the process of pushing bills from outside the Parliament, or pushing amendments to bills, is that you've got to be precisely clear about what your policy objective is. Mm -hmm. And when I say precisely clear, I mean absolutely precisely clear because this has got to be turned into legislation. Now, whilst we had lay people's views as to what we wanted, mm -hmm. when you give that to a lawyer, they'll say, well, I can interpret that in three or four ways. Mm -hmm. So which one of these three or four ways are you actually after? Mm -hmm. So we got in tow with a former government uh, solicitor, now retired, mm -hmm. okay. and we gave our policy instructions to him. And then he came back very bluntly, I have to say, but extremely <laughs> helpfully and said, right, I see what you're after, I think, but I'm unclear about this, I'm unclear about that. Precisely what do you mean by that? 
wouldn't that contradict that piece of legislation and so on and so forth. Amazing. So you tidy up all your policy objectives and get them precisely clear, mm -hmm. which we did. Then that same solicitor, uh, who has also had drafted a lot of legislation in his time, including the Scotland Act at one point, um, then got help from a, a parliamentary draftsman, uh, and it was a draftsman, I should say, mm -hmm. um, who uh, then, he, that, that solicitor then turned what we told them and the interaction we'd had into clear policy um, uh, instructions for the draftsman, and the draftsman then produced the amendments. Okay. Now, the importance of that was, one, you're going to Parliament then with a very, very precisely clear idea of what you want and how you want the thing to operate. Mm -hmm. But also, when you're giving the amendments, as we did to government solicitors, to say, look, this is what we're tabling. If you want to adopt it before we table it, please mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't, we're still going to push it. So mm -hmm. just be aware of that. Now, when they saw them, they knew these were properly drafted amendments. Yeah. And very often, you know, here in Parliament, uh, ministers saying... Well, we'd love to accept this because it's technically incompetent for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Then we want to get rid of all those arguments. Mm -hmm. And as it happened, some of the government solicitors who were looking at this, it was a former boss of theirs who'd been drafting them, which is quite helpful, I think. Um, not that we were pushing that. Yeah, sure. In fact, that wasn't necessarily known by everybody. But, um, but that is a really important part of the process. If you're not clear and if you haven't got things as well drafted as you can do, yeah. you've got less chance of getting things through than if you do all of that. And that was what was, you know, the principal way in which we, I think, managed to get a lot of the things out that we wanted to get in both the Community Empowerment Act, but also the 2016 Land Reform Act. Yeah, that's really helpful and that's really interesting because I suppose with issues where there's a single ask or where there's something that's really straightforward, maybe you don't need to go down that way, but for yeah. something like yours that's far more complex and it's got lots of different moving parts, can see how that's... Yeah, and I think too that we were challenged at one point um, as an organisation to draft the, the act that we wanted. Um, this was done at the, one of the early Community Land Scotland conferences uh, and it was somebody who'd been involved in land reform for many years, worked for the, then worked for the Highlands and Lands Enterprise and I think he had just retired that year, I think, and definitely felt a bit off the leash, I <laughs> and at the conference he said, you know, I, well, if you want these things, why don't you draft the act? Yeah. So that got us into thinking about what would we put in an act. Now, that is a very complex thing to do, yeah. and it's very major resources required if it's a tall, complex act. Mm -hmm. um, so we eventually didn't go down that route because this other vehicle became available to us. Mm -hmm. If it hadn't, we might well have drafted an act and used the same sort of techniques. Mm -hmm. As it happened, we had the vehicle, so we were drafting amendments to a bill. Um, but, but it, you know, so having had the challenge to, well, what do you want in legislative yeah. terms? Yeah. That's quite a challenge, and it yeah, makes you absolutely. think hard of what it is you precisely want. I mean, you don't get everything you want in these processes, but you get a lot. And what you also do is you use the process to table, you know, what are called probing amendments by M mm -hmm. MSPs. So they'll table something, they might say to the minister, I'm not necessarily going to push this, mm -hmm. I just want to get your position sorted out in the back of that. So you end up on the record a whole series of commitments that you've been looking for. So you might not get mm -hmm. the statute changed, but you get a commitment on the parliamentary record from a minister saying, no, we don't need to do that because we're going to do this. Or, you know, some and other... And you can try and hold them to account for that. Well, you can hold them that. to account for that. But also, it gives you some time to say, OK, they're against this amendment because of those three reasons. So let's remove those three reasons. Yeah. So you can go back possibly at stage three, 
with another amendment to try mm -hmm. and say, well, the Minister said they wouldn't accept that because of these three things. We've now sorted out these three things, we'll now accept it. So it's, it's quite a, a, bit, almost a very deliberate and very active process. And as people will know who are listening, if they're interested, but will know from their own work, is that there's very little time once you get into a stage two process. It really yes, motors through. So you've got to be on your toes and you've got to be you know, looking for every opportunity that you can to mm. hit the right buttons at the right time to mm. get the right things done. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so lots of the campaigns in our book, the people running them worked in coalition, so they worked with other organisations. So how much for yourselves, so obviously Community Land Scotland spearheaded this, but but how much did you work with other organisations and how useful was that? Well, we both we, we did and it was used very useful. Um, at that point in time, partly because of what was going on in the Community Empowerment Act, there were regular meetings taking place between Community Land Scotland, SCBO, uh, Development Trust Association Scotland, the Community Alliance, Community Woodlands Association. And we were meeting, you know, Exactly, every couple of months or so, we're reviewing where things are getting to. We would be saying to colleagues here, look, we're going to push for this amendment and that amendment, and it would be great if we got your support. And equally, they would be saying, yeah, we like that, but could you add to this? Or we, would, we might not be able to support you on that, but we could support you on this. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, they would be saying, and we're thinking of this, can you back us on that? So there's a lot of collaboration, and it was also very useful from a kind of policy development point of view to put your ideas to people in a private uh, meeting who have got very similar sympathies to your own yeah, okay. and then they're saying how would that work mm. or how would that match with that and so on and so forth. So you can iron out the wrinkles and yeah. you can try and make things more effective but you also try to build a coalition so that when you go with amendments to MSPs and say this is not what's got the backing of Community Land Scotland, it's got the backing of these four other organisations yeah. or five, and simultaneously they would be doing the same and we would be lining up behind them on that. And we, we did a lot of that in the Land Reform Act of 2016, where we were you know, campaigning across a range of quite distinct different interests, partly about the community right to buy, partly about the establishment of a land commission, partly about the need for a register of all land holdings in Scotland because mm -hmm. it's not known who owns all the land in Scotland and that should be open and transparent and we're camping on human rights questions to try and get more human rights um, considerations into land questions uh, so so it was important to get a broad as broad an alliance of supporters as you can yeah. uh, and again that worked very well for us in that brilliant thank you very much so um, <laughs> so my final question but, um, is that community land ownership sorted now? Absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, there's much more to do. I mean, I'm not as actively involved in it anymore, mm -hmm. although I still you know, give occasional bits of help to Community Land Scotland. Um, but even though, not even, the, the Land Reform Minister herself, the current Scottish Government, have made it clear it's not over. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's already work going on about the next uh, series of things. And, for example, the Community Land Scotland has got very interested in the repopulation of rural areas. Um, the rural areas of Scotland are facing a major crisis of depopulation, potentially okay. a demographic crisis as we go forward. So they've been thinking about that and then what comes along with the planning bill? So there was a lot of stuff done around the planning bill and several, you know, maybe a dozen amendments were proposed to the planning bill as it went through. 
uh, uh, about repopulation, requiring ministers to have regard to repopulation and doing future mm. uh, national planning framework and all that sort of stuff. And quite a number of the amendments that Community Land Scotland pushed got through, so they use that vehicle. But there's now talk of another Land Reform Act at some point, uh, partly because the Land Commission, which was established under the 2016 Land Reform Act, is now you know, really pursuing the agenda and getting into questions of the monopoly ownership of land in Scotland. Yeah, okay. And so there'll be more opportunities coming and I'm pretty certain that Community Land Scotland and others will be at the table arguing for more change and proposing amendments to do that. And we've got a parliamentary institution in Scotland, thankfully, that allows you to do that. If you can understand where to get in and which levers to pull and you know at what times, then quite a lot is achievable. But you've got to be very clear, very, very clear what you want and very determined. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. So what I'll do, thank you everyone for listening. What I'll do is I'll make sure that um, Community Land Scotland's website is up on our website alongside the podcast where you'll also find a link to our book. So thank you again for your time. You're very welcome.